Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Steve Tupai Francis about his new book on Kraftwerk's seminal 1981 album, Computer World. The book explores Kraftwerk's revolutionary sonic template, their conceptual and artistic preoccupations, and lyrical obsessions to provide new insights into one of the greatest records ever made. Upon its release, the record was a revelation. It was unlike anything created for mainstream consumers of music at the time. Kraftwerk set off a sonic detonation that is still being felt today. Here's the recording of our discussion. Thank you all for coming through to readings tonight. My name is Nico, I'm one of the events team and one of the booksellers here. And very glad to have you all here and to have our wonderful author here to celebrate this book that's just been released. Before we get going with the event tonight though, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge and point out that this is Indigenous land. This is the Kulin country. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders of the past, those here with us in our lives today in the present and those to come in the future who will help lead us towards reconciliation and truth-telling. I'm very glad to be able to welcome you here to celebrate Computer World by Steve Tupai Francis and I would like to welcome Steve here tonight. So please give Steve a round of applause for coming to join us. Thanks, every- Thanks Nico. Thanks, everyone. Steve, I know that this is a book about craft work and maybe this is a roundabout way of asking, but could I ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to craft work, if that'd be all right? Absolutely. I like talking about myself. <laughs> That's not a good way to start, is it? But um, <laughs> what, why craft work? So it, it's funny. It goes all the way back to growing up in Frankston, of all places. Um, mum and dad are here, actually, and my auntie um, and my brother. Um, the most Anglo place on the planet, almost, um, and not very many Tongans there, hey, mum, in Frankston. Um, but it's funny. How I actually came across craft work was... The funniest thing, we, we used to go to the Frankston Library all the time and at the time, like this is probably the late 70s, early 80s, there were no CDs at that time, Nico. Um, it was cassettes and they had a cassette borrowing library. And one day, this is a very amazing moment for me, I went into the Frankston Library to this hallowed space, the cassette library, which is like this big, huge round room. F- cassettes from the floor to the ceiling, just everywhere. But there was this one cassette that I could see in the distance. It was kind of glowing. It was this garish, horrible yellow. And I'm like, what the hell is that? It sort of drew me, you know, like drew me towards it, like some sort of, I don't know. And I picked it up and it was like, so I've never seen an album cover like it. So on that day, I picked up that cassette and I picked up another cassette by a band called Japan, called Gentlemen Take Polaroids, took them home and because before that I should explain, my first single was Fox on the Run by Sweet. That was the first single I ever bought. The first album I ever bought was Kiss Dynasty. <laughs> so and then I bought 17 other Kiss albums after that. So I was a bit obsessed with Kiss. Thankfully my Auntie Merle for Christmas, she gave me Blondie's The Best of Blondie by, um, yeah. And that was my sort of oh, okay, there's something other than Kiss out there. But in terms of my background, you know, this is my first book on music. 
on music. So, you know, I'm an anthropo- I've got a PhD in anthropology, so I've written academic things. And actually, here's a little thing. I, I'm an anthropologist, but because I'm half Tongan, I thought, hey, anthropology live in the village. Hey, islands, let's go, I'll go and live there for a couple of years, you know. And so I did a lot of ethnographic research uh, sitting on the beach. No, not sitting on the beach. Uh, <laughs> you know, talking to other Tongans about migration and movement. So PhD in anthropology, lots of writing there. I've also been in the for-purpose sector, like Australian Red Cross, where Lou, we, we used to work there. Policy advocacy. So important, but slightly boring. So <laughs> during lockdown, my wife, B, there she is, she said, Steve, we're in lockdown here. Why don't you just start writing about your passion, what you really are passionate about, and music? So, I've got—I haven't got a big as big a collection as Bruce Butler over there, but I've got probably four thousand albums, LPs. And so I thought, hey, why don't I start writing a review of each of one of one of my albums? And one of my first ones was Computer World. Yeah. So a year and a half later, got into the writing mode. Thought I'd love these thirty-three and a third series. I'd love to be able to you know, do one of those. And David Bowie is my first love, everyone, most people know. But there's already a couple of those. I thought, oh, no one's done craft work. Someone needs to do craft work. So that's kind of, that was the journey, Nico. Yeah, nice. Um, and I should point out, um, Mally, thank you for introducing Steve to something aside from Kiss. <laughs> um, nothing against Kiss though, you know. No. Great energy and great, great face paint, you know. Absolutely. But um, just a lot of Kiss, that's all. Well, maybe we'll leave, we'll leave Kiss for a moment. <laughs> we can sign them aside. I'd like to maybe get into craft work if we could. Um, and so in this book, this lovely little book, um, you open one of the chapters with this quote that I'd like to read back to you, if that's okay. It's a quote from Emil Schult, who is the kind of the fifth beetle of craft work. Um, and he writes, Craftwork was a fortunate cooperation and exchange of three cultural individuals with emphasis on art, music and technology, reaching for a local, national, international and cosmic expression. Which I thought was a really nice way of giving his very astute observation of what craftwork is. So for those who are uninitiated, can you tell us a bit more about craftwork? Sure, happy to. <laughs> Four amazing individuals from Dusseldorf in Germany, also known as like the, the kind of the jewel of the industrial part of Germany, really. The, and in the book, I talk a lot about their background. The classic lineup of Kraftwerk is um, the founders, Ralph and Florian. Um, and in the early days, there's it's actually an album called Ralph and Florian. Um, and they had a, a bit of a mixed lineup at that point. Then the third person that Emil was referring to was himself. So they, they met him at art college. He was their art director. So he he created that um, the, the Computer World cover, also the Autobahn cover and Radioactivity. He also wrote lots of their lyrics. Uh, he wrote Computer World lyrics. He also was their road manager. Um, on Autobahn, he actually played violin and um, guitar. And so he also was their arch conceptualist. So I call him the fifth Beatle. He was, he was always there. Then he faded into the background and then Wolfgang came in on, on electronic drums. They actually created the, these little drum pads. If you ever see uh, Doco, there's them on World of Tomorrow or something like that uh, on BBC. And they've got and these Germans with their very newfangled instruments and Wolfgang actually had made these like drum pads with, it was like a metal stick with a, a little wire and it was dick, 
tick, tick. Um, and then also Carl Bartos joined. So that uh, he was a multi instrumentalist. So that was the sort of the classic lineup. So it was the four of them plus Emil. Um, and for the book, I got to know Emil very well. He's a really beautiful space cadet. He's uh, he's an art. He's still an artist, and he's. They kind of talk about themselves as this new generation, this generation that is post-war, post the Nazi kind of the the, the trauma of that Nazi period, and they kind of part of their project. And this is why I like them so much. It's not just music. They're kind of they've got this cultural project happening as well in which they reach back to the Weimar Republic. They kind of want to skip that... that and, and this is a, a project of their whole generation. They're kind of trying to move on from... Acknowledge Nazism, and, but move beyond it and create a new German identity as a generation. And that, as part of that, they, they wanted to remember the past that they liked. So they skipped back over to the Weimar Republic, the 20s and 30s. Their favourite film was Metropolis. Their, their Bauhaus architecture and all of the all of the Gropius what he achieved with uh, the Bauhaus they reached back to other types of art part of it is they're they're almost like this in they love this industry you know industry and and the production of mankind and and humankind I should say um is something that they really focus on and uh, that they actually love. They love the products of industry. So it's kind of this, they're like a love letter to German industry, but also beyond that as a new generation, it's a love letter to a pan-European. So they're kind of, I see them as reaching out to be this new entity of German, Germany as part of Europe. So there's this kind of historical kind of, they're trying to reconceptualize things. So. So their background, um, actually Florian was from a very wealthy family. They were all well-educated. They went to university. Um, They were immersed in the Fluxus movement and in in art and design. So they're actually, there's so much more going on with them than just music. So they went, they actually were classically trained, all of them. You know, Joseph Boys, the famous Fluxus uh, uh, professor and artist, was actually one of their professors. It was Emil Schultz professor so they kind of come from this it's not just uh, uh, electronic music for them it's this whole huge concept that they're trying to achieve and it's it's very German it's very yeah so very very foreign from someone in Frankston at the age of 13 listening to it for the first time going what the hell is this yeah absolutely but there's something really um, profound and very striking about how it all comes together in this really holistic way to where I think even if you're, you know, as you say, 12 years old in Frankston and you don't really know what the Weimar Republic is or you don't know what Fluxus is, there's something kind of shocking about that album cover and about that sound that I think cuts through and really, you know, speaks quite loudly to anyone who comes across it really. Which I guess runs into something else I wanted to ask you, which was that, you know, you wrote about this album that came out in 1981. Um, It's 2022 now, but why do you think it resonates so strongly with people now as it has done for the last 40 years? That's a good question. I think there's two things. One is the sound of the album and one is the concept of the album. So if I talk about the sound, the sound, it's kind of like you've never heard anything like this. It's so sort of like um, unique and encapsulated. And so it's, 
to describe it, it's like you, you can hear it in 1981, but you could hear it now and still go, wow, that I can sort of, there's something so modern about this still today. So I think the sound, uh, what they achieved was unique. Remembering that they were, that part of their, their project was anti-rock. So, you know, when Autobahn came out, this three-minute version of this 20-minute out one side of an album called Autobahn, some genius record exec in New York decided we could cut it down to three minutes and maybe it's going to be a hit in America. Who would have thought? It actually was crazy. So this is about 1973, isn't it? 70, 73, 74. So that became a hit, a top ten hit in America. With Autobahn being so successful, it meant that they could actually buy instruments. So they got rid of traditional instruments and they decided we're only going using uh, electronic synthesizers. Moogs were like so expensive, but they could buy them with their, their royalties. They actually had instruments made and they even actually connected for the uh, vocoder. Even with IBM, they did work with them as well. So they, they kind of became this like laboratory of synthesizer music and that was their anti-rock thing. They were like, right, we're doing this, we're going to produce it. So the sound is so unique because of this combination of different instruments and things like that, which we'll talk about in a minute, but also the concept, which then kind of, I say, created the 80s sound. And that includes hip hop, like Planet Rock, one of the first hip hop songs sampled numbers from this album and Trans Europe Express, techno, Depeche Mode and on all of those early 80s synth pop bands, um, all oh homage to them. Um, but they also used some, some of those unique things that like David Bowie used on Station to Station. So they had a Vaco Orchestron, which gave that kind of a choral sound on radioactivity. And they used like the EMS Synthi A, which uh, Brian Eno, the suitcase synth, which is actually worth a lot of money now. But they had so some of those squiggles on like numbers and, and pocket calculator. And also the ARP Odyssey, which is a very famous synth, I think. Gary Newman used that a lot, and the Mini Moog and those sorts of instruments. So they had this array of technology, but they also had a Texas Instruments module and where they, again, they wrote in the thing and then it would say it in, you know, numbers in Japanese or whatever. So they used, they like to use everyday objects of, of consumerism and that's, I think, one of the things about Kraftwerk is they loved industry, they loved technology and they loved the everyday object. And so... That's why I think computer world is actually a kind of an ode to technology. It's like a love letter to technology. And you know that computer world song, it just feels warm, doesn't it? At the point of 991 was the cusp where personal computing was starting to come in. So sometimes people say, oh, they were predicting the future. I don't think so. I think they were observing the present. And then, you know, they were interested in some things as well. They, they loved the technology, but they also could see some warnings in it. So, you know, in the song, they talk about FBI, Deutsche Bank. It's so ahead of its time. They're actually talking about security and personal information. They'd had this experience where they'd come back from tour, crossing the borders back into Germany. They just noticed all of this now using computers, more security details about they wanted their license and they wanted to enter that information into the computer at the border and things like that. So I think they were starting to observe what we experience now around security and things like that. So so was this dichotomy. They loved technology, they loved it, but they also were aware of some of the dangers of it as well. So there's always a lot more going on with craft work than, you know, but it's so simple at the same time. I mean, I think there, there are certainly parts in the book where you're very much focusing on 
research and factoring that into like a grand narrative of understanding, you know, this music and these artists. Um, and then there are parts where you, you kind of venture off into your own thoughts and ponderings. Um, and there were some sections that I thought were really, really beautiful and spoke to your, like your deep appreciation and understanding of this stuff. So maybe if I could read two quick passages that really spoke to me, they were, all music, it can be argued, involves music and change. Kraftwerk's particular point of difference, though, was the fact that the forms they sought to recreate and represent were the structured, repetitive clockwork heartbeats of industry, the machines, cars, trains, robots, computers, rather than the organic and chaotic patterns and forms of society, people, nature, flora, and fauna. And then you say, the band used the idea of music as motion as part of their project of distancing themselves from the cliched tropes of rock, which they characterized as a stable format. Wanting to avoid that box, Kraftwerk described their electronic music as very liquid situation, like mercury. And I think that even though it is so mechanical and there's like a rigidity to it and very much a feeling of static, simultaneously there's a lot of that kind of flow and like bounce that really comes through with those sounds. I think it's that, that pre-digital analog computing that kind of has that magic and that quality that still sparkles given we're so used to very ubiquitous dry, very digital experiences now. So I thought that was a really nice note that you opened up there in the text. Moving on from them alone, I was interested in perhaps getting some of your thoughts about what else was going on with other musicians around the world. I was thinking about other people who had factored synthesizers in, in a kind of a way that's now very part of our culture but was quite even controversial at the time or kind of shocking. So I was thinking about people like Yellow Magic Orchestra from Japan who are now kind of held in a very same revered status. Um, and then maybe another band that I don't feel like has the same reverential status perhaps, but I think is maybe just as important. And that is Devo of Whippet fame. Would you, would you be interested in expanding upon perhaps thinking about people who are doing similar things, um, where the similarities are, but perhaps where the differences are that made you focus on craft work and say, this is the one I'm going to go for from this period? Th thanks, Nico. And yeah, awesome to be able to talk about Devo as well. Hey, I love Devo. Yeah, just thinking about the differences between them or, or the similarities. Obviously, they both work in electronic idiom. Having said that, Devo did use a lot of guitar, more guitar than people remember in their in their music, um, particularly up to freedom of choice. But um, if, if I was really to think about it, I've talked about Kraftwerk as like they, they love technology, that they... they that was their focus, their love of technology. In terms of Devo, it wasn't about love. They were angry. They had a punk energy and they had a, a kind of almost a, a situationist kind of philosophy of deconstruction. And so they were kind of angry about consumerism, about the West, about the military-industrial complex. They've got a song called Love Without Anger isn't love at all. <laughs> they're just always angry about stuff in a, in a very kind of straight-laced way. So, yeah, and they're always commenting on consumerism in a negative way. So, like, um, freedom of choice is what you got. Freedom from choice is what you want. So, like, so profound, actually. Again, very – but similar to Kraftwerk, very simple in what they're saying but profound. So, and always very sarcastic. So, beautiful world and, and, and all of those sort of things. So, I would say that they share some DNA, but they kind of focus on technology and the world in diff very different ways. Mm. 
to bring it back to calf work, is is their their simplicity of their melodies just really shine through. You don't even have to like electronic music. You just have to listen to their, their songs and the, just the simplicity of the melodies. And I think, Nico, we were talking about there's lots of cover versions of, of Kraftwerk songs. And, you know, I've heard country versions of Kraftwerk songs and just in so many different idioms, reggae even, but I think the strength of their songwriting comes through because those melodies are so strong. So I think they were songwriters as well as arch conceptualists. So it was, yeah, high and low. Mm. I was thinking a lot about how so much of this sound that they influenced, particularly in North America throughout the 1980s that spun off into hip hop and then techno and house music and then back to Europe where now like techno is basically synonymous with Berlin and of course they were separated by a you know a cruel division but um that music really came back to germany kind of recycled in a different way um, yeah. and i guess did you have any other thoughts about that influence and where it sits with music today um yeah that's a big question <laughs> sorry <laughs> um uh, well, if i reflect on what like you know the the techno producers said about craftwork i think that they were like like Derek May and people like that would say they were so so straight, they were funky. Because in the book, I kind of talk about conceptualization, give some background to craft work and those sorts of things. But then the last chapters are about I go through each song and unpack it from lyrically what they're doing, but also musically. And there was this mixture of there's some things that are really on the beat, really precise. And because it's analog, there's some things that are slightly not quite on the beat and that's what gives it the funk it's kind of like you've got to be on the one but then it's the slight slightly off that gives syncopation which gives the funk of it and and that's what i think actually modern techno has kind of lost a little bit of that it's almost too precise they took that bit but people forget that also craft work were precise but they're also very human so it was like the robots yes but it was very human music because the vocals are very fragile often like computer love very fragile and sweet kind of like forlorn almost sad almost but then also the humor so that sometimes people forget the humor and that was really florian he embodied the humor his face he's always just got this smirk this wry kind of look on his face so i think Modern, music, modern dance music has taken a lot of the precision and, and some of the innovation, but I think it's lost a little bit of the human as well. But mm. that's not to ever go, it's just... I think um, with um, like the software that people use to make music now, the, the quantization, which is the process of locking beats to like beats like really, really stringently, um, has gotten so precise that people feel like you need to reinsert some chaos so you can download programs that actually make it go off the grid for you to make it a bit more human, which just seems like, what? Yeah. <laughs> very um, postmodern. Of course. Most human. Yeah. More human than human. Yeah, we actually have a very yeah. special thing, which is a little video message from Emil. Hello in Down Under from Viersen, Germany. This is Emil Schult and I'm sending out my greetings to Stephen Francis and his spectacular book release tonight. Hope you're all having a good time. You're in a wonderful location. You can see I'm still busy. My uh, studio is full of work, various periods. Here's a nice new piece. It's a uh, model of a, a James Webb telescope, which is in space now. And uh, 
various other space paintings. I love space this paintings. universe and I love this world and I just hope we can all get together and get this thing out of its crisis. Uh, first time in Australia, 1981, I remember I met some young artists that were just forming a group called Midnight Oil, uh, I guess you know what I'm talking about. And I'm so happy that uh, people are still enjoying our work and uh, I hope the same for Steve and all of you, that your work will be appreciated as uh, long as you live. And uh, that's why I can say, see you later. <laughs> all the best, bye bye. He's such a nice, that's good, worth a clap, isn't it? Um, he's such a, such a beautiful person and um, I just love the bit where he goes, and here are some space paintings. <laughs> and I'm like, yo. And he was actually in the video, he's walking past the, orig the original Autobahn cover and then on, at the back there's the Trans Europe Express kind of like, um, yeah, so pretty amazing. But it's really special that you got that message from him. That's a real link to our, our musical history. Um, that's really special. And this book is really special, Steve. Um, we have plenty of copies here and I'd strongly urge you to grab one. Um, Steve, I reckon if you'd like to do a signing, that'd be really fantastic. No worries. I brought a Sharpie just in case. Oh, you, you came prepared. Fantastic. <laughs> I did. Um, so thank you for writing this wonderful book. I had a lot of pleasure reading it and sifting out those funny anecdotes and the wisdom that you got from, you know, from the source itself. And thank you for coming and speaking with me and speaking for all of us here tonight for this wonderful event. Um, I'd like to thank you very, very much and I hope you all give Steve a big round of applause. So thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for coming. Thank you, Nico, so much for hosting tonight and for readings for inviting me. Um, this, this feels really cool. I went to Melbourne Uni and I was, always came here and I was like, oh, wow, this is a bucket list tick off this one tonight. So thank you so much. Um, and thanks to everyone for coming. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews and receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.